to the Hullabaloo podcast. My name is Jeff Sparrow. Graham Willett is a Melbourne-based activist and historian. He is the author of Living Out Loud, a history of gay and lesbian activism in Australia, and he is a committee member of the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. Thanks for joining us, Graham. Thank you. I've described you as an activist and historian. Let's put those two things in perspective. When did you first become involved in politics? What was the so, context yeah, for that? I was radicalised by the Whitlam years. So by the time of the, the coup in 75, I was clearly, and thought of myself as being on the left. Then at uni, and at uni, you know, it was kind of a much more kind of radical period than now. So that pushed that along a bit. At the same time, I was coming to terms with being gay, and they fitted together pretty nicely, really. Yes, that was, I guess, what I wanted to get out, the relationship between your activism um, for the gay and lesbian community and your socialist politics. So that was more or less simultaneous? Yeah. So I moved out of home in 79 and into Fitzroy, into a shared household, where, as it happened, some of the people in that household were part of the gay left, which at that point, 79, was organising the 5th National Homosexual Conference, which was an activist conference that travelled around various cities. So being having access to that kind of radical... Uh, environment really, really helped sort of put the whole thing together for me. Kind of leftism and gay liberation uh, were, were part of a package. And what about the lesbian and gay archives? When were they first created? When did that become a project? Yeah, so they were created in 78 at the 4th National Homosexual Conference in Sydney, which was politically quite astute, really. The, the conference was in fact the, the gathering place for the movement. There were usually five or 600 people there. The movement thought of itself as what I guess we would call the community. And so having the endorsement of the conference really gave the archives a kind of authority and a standing that it, it traded on for a very long time. And how do you see 
lesbian and gay history as a field. I mean, I was thinking about this in relation to labour history, where the nature of the discipline has always been, I guess, a subject for debate. I mean, is it something that's defined by a particular political perspective, for instance, in the way that I feel like labour history is? Yeah, you wouldn't have to be a radical uh, to to do that kind of history because a lot of it is kind of primitive, the, the primitive accumulation of knowledge, you know, trying to find out where the homosexuals were and what they were doing and what records exist. And that's a kind of technique that doesn't particularly require anything other than an interest and a willingness to do it. But I do think for a lot of us it's, it's always been bound up with a movement to transform society both in our interests, but also much more broadly. Yes, because I imagine that's what invests these discussions with, with meaning, isn't it? Otherwise, why are you concerned to excavate these people, for instance? Yeah. The other reason to do it, I guess, is is academic kudos. You know, you can kind of get publication points for doing this. Um, but for I think for most people who do it, even the ones in an academic context, academic situation, do do it because they think it's important and it ha- it makes a useful contribution to society as well as to the discipline, as well as to their personal uh, careers. All right, we're in the middle of this survey uh, for equal marriage that Turnbull has cooked up. Now, I know you've done research on surprisingly early examples of same-sex marriage in Australia because we've talked about them before in different contexts, but I thought that might be interesting to excavate some of those stories in the context of this plebiscite. So what, what were the earliest instances of same-sex couples declaring that they either were married or they wanted to be married? So the earliest stuff we've got is the 1830s. As part of the anti-transportation campaign, which you know the kind of the good citizens of Sydney were, were involved in, there was much concern about the fact that by shipping all these reprobate men to the colonies, you were, both, we would say, skewing the kind of sexual... Um, balance and that these men were debauching society. Some of the research at the time involves people going off to places like uh, Norfolk Island and being shocked, shocked to discover that there were not just same-sex couples, men, but um, men who called themselves husband and wife. Uh, And it's very clear from the way they talk about it. They're not just making this up. They may find it, you know, politically useful to talk about. But there are dozens and dozens of such couples. And it's, you know, who knows what's in those men's minds. That's what we can't get at. But clearly they, they thought of themselves and described themselves in particular kinds of ways. And you also found people well into the 20th century who were actually getting married in churches. Yes, there's a really lovely story from um, a book called Words from the Same Heart in which uh, a woman talked about her life as, as, as a lesbian Uh, in a relationship with another woman. They would live together as a couple. They would travel as a couple. They would tell people that they were nurses and that's why they couldn't get married because nurses weren't meant to get married. But at one point she says, and we went into a little church, a wee church somewhere in in the country and and, uh, exchanged rings and, and considered themselves therefore married in the eyes of God, I guess, which of course has always been one of the ways of getting married. You just declare yourself to be married. Um, and and God is presumably blessing this somehow. Yeah, the reason why I asked you about this because my understanding was that this was fairly anomalous 
in the early gay and lesbian movement. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of the period prior to gay liberation where those very brave and small numbers of people who are agitating around this issue are doing so in a reasonably cautious sort of way. But as far as I know, they're not raising the issue of marriage. Is that is that right? No, that's right. Um, Verity Bergman's been involved in a project called Reason in Revolt, which is digitising... I used to work on that. You did. <clears throat> digitising documents from Australia's radical history. They've just uploaded a couple of hundred from the Lesbian and Gay Archives to sort of really boost the gay stuff. And somebody I was talking to said they found a letter from 72 saying, you know, it wouldn't be great if we could get married. But in fact, that, you know, people did live as couples um, and they might have described themselves as married to friends who were in the know. But there was certainly no real public demand for it until you get the emergence of, of a kind of much more public and demanding kind of politics. It's no longer about being accepted. It's about making society change. And for some people, but only some, that includes all kinds of equality issues, including marriage. Yeah, I mean, I'll ask you about um, the moment of gay liberation in a minute, but I, I was particularly curious about the activism prior to that because my understanding of it it was much more uh, about respectability and it had occurred to me that perhaps a demand such as marriage rights might have been voiced in those circumstances but do you know why that wasn't an issue was it simply that they couldn't imagine winning on it or Yes, I, I don't think anyone seriously thought that was a possibility when decriminalisation seemed hard enough. The other thing to say is that a lot of those early activists either weren't homosexual or didn't publicly identify as because the issue was the issue. You know, we are progressive, modern citizens. We want Australia to be a progressive, modern, liberal society. And that included a whole series of issues, you know, like racism and abortion and censorship, in which these people came to embrace the issue, in this case decriminalisation, as citizens rather than as people fighting for their own rights. And therefore, I don't think it occurred to them that this was even remotely a real thing. Uh, it was about decriminalisation, maybe a higher level of tolerance and acceptance, and that was about the limit of their imagination. OK, what about slightly later? I was recently rereading Dennis Altman's book, Homosexual Oppression and... Um, Liberation from 1971? Two. One, one and two, that's one and right, two. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating because in some ways it seems very contemporary and in some ways it seems very much a, a document from another time. And I was struck in reading that he's quite disapproving, or perhaps disapproving isn't the right word, but he, he writes about promiscuity as in some ways almost a symptom of, of, of oppression something that once liberation is achieved might not occur in quite the same sort of way. But he's also not at all enthusiastic about anything like marriage, partly because he explicitly sees that the liberation of gay and lesbians will require a reshaping of humanity. And so relationships will look very different. Was that the kind of general position in, in, in those times? Yeah, the movement was incredibly diverse. And to the extent that Dennis does a really good job. It's partly around the fact that um, he reflects those different currents and they're not reconcilable often. Um, but the liberationist current, particularly as it kind of took shape in 71, 72, 73, was 
closely attached to women's liberation and drew upon their kind of analysis of the world. And the idea that you could, even if you could reform marriage, why would you bother? You know, maybe we should just live different kinds of lives. And this was particularly true for radical lesbians, both the organisation but also sort of small R, small L radical lesbians, who were very keen to try and create new kinds of relationships, new ways of living. Uh, and that involved uh, often a rejection of monogamy and, of course, all of the associated jealousy, you know, personal stuff, but also the legal stuff about marriage. So the marriage seemed like a strange thing to do, really. It was, a, a, it was itself a symptom of an oppressive society and in a liberated society, people would be free to kind of pursue their hearts, I guess. When you look back at the documents from that time, you know, 70, 71, 72, what are the, the biggest differences between the kinds of arguments that you're hearing today? What are the similarities? I mean, I always struck, for instance, Altman's not very keen on drag, for instance. It seems quite hostile to it in a way that you just wouldn't hear today. I'm just kind of curious about what other ideas that seem anom anomalous or interesting compared to today. Yeah, I think, as I said, there's these kind of two currents, the equality and the liberation. The liberation is much harder for people to understand now because it involved uh, a, a personal freedom. He talks, as people did, about polymorphous perversity, this kind of Freudian idea that we're all innately sexually we would say fluid now. Everybody is really that. And if only society could be transformed, that would that would become possible. It would become normal. And I don't think that's widely held now. And nowadays we have a, a plethora of identities, but they're all little boxes that you're meant to slot yourself into, LGBTIQ and so on. Um, and and that, that's a very different way of, of thinking about the world. I mean, for the equality people, there was kind of gayness men and women, you know, change the laws, change attitudes, that's all that's required. For the liberation period, it was this kind of idea of polymorphous perversity and self-transformation through social transformation. I've also been reading a little bit about the um, first Mardi Gras protest in 78, and I was struck by looking through the lists of people who were involved in that, that it was very much a demonstration of both men and women, both gay and, and straight. But so I'm curious about the relationship between gay men and lesbians in the movement. For how long was it seen as a kind of common issue? And when and to what extent did these sort of currents diverge? Yep. So the early organisations from sort of 1970 onwards uh, aspired to involve both men and women and were relatively successful. Though as it became clear that as, as women's liberation started to influence women particularly, but also some men, the existence of sexism in these organisations became more and more a problem. And the possibility of separating yourself out becomes the preferred option. So that in Melbourne, for example, Society 5, women kind of drift away. In gay liberation, they split off to create this organisation called Radical Lesbians, all one word, um, which at the time was a source of grief to many, particularly to, to the men. Um, but in retrospect, it, it let people get on with their, their work. You know, they stopped bickering with each other and started doing what they wanted to do. So that remained, there were always men and women working together all through that period. But the kind of idea was that really there had been this kind of profound separation out. And I think that's just because that was sort of 
obvious but not universally true. And it is striking that in 1978, you know, there's kind of the day of action that, that is culminates in the Mardi Gras parade that night involves lots of women and men. And that's partly because it's a reaction to the mobilisation by the right. Everybody understands that Mary Whitehouse and Anita Bryant and in Australia the Festival of Light are a threat to us all. And anyone with any kind of political consciousness starts to come together to resist that. And that's what that, that first Mardi Gras is. It's a day of action in solidarity with the American gay movement. And so there's a protest demo in the morning, a standard, you know, march through the city chanting demo. There's a, a day of conf- a conference day of seminars and workshops and so on. And then there's this evening event, which was meant to be much more kind of celebratory. I was also struck by looking through those lists of names, how many people I recognised from the left. What was the relationship then between the movement and I guess what we'd call the far left or the socialist left yep. at the time? Yep. I mean, the far left embraced gay liberation very quickly and very easily in Australia. It was a bit of a struggle in some other countries, partly because they all emerged from the same milieu. You know, however much the the far left may have embraced Trotskyism, for example, or Maoism, they all in fact came out of that kind of radical anti-Vietnam upheaval. And so most of the far left, but not all, uh, recognised that the commonalities and the emergence of a, a liberationist politics was an important way in which that they brought those those different groups and sets of ideas together. The other question that comes out um, in respect of Mardi Gras seems to be the relationship between the gay and lesbian movement and um, what we might call, I guess, the gay community um, and the gay cinema. Am I correct to seeing that that demonstration as a kind of watershed? between the separation. I mean, when I read the early people, they seem to be quite hostile to the bar scene and quite hostile to what we'd see today as the gay community, but less so after 78? That's right. The The hostility was to the bar owners who were felt to be exploiting uh, their clientele by charging more, and that's true, uh, but also often to the people who went there because they were felt to be apolitical and, and kind of closeted in everyday life and just going out at night and so on. That wasn't universally true, but that was that was a widely held view on the left, the gay left. The point of the Mardi Gras, the police attack on the Mardi Gras and the big kind of uh, resistance to that, which went on for months. You know, every time people gathered outside a courthouse or tried to protest these arrests, more people would get arrested. Uh, and that drew more and more people into it. Altman says at one point, you know, by the late 70s, gay, he's talking about gay men, but it's true for lesbians as well, aren't as revolutionary as, as people had hoped they would be, but they had embraced an idea of citizenship, really. We have rights. We deserve to be treated equality. The cops can't treat us like that anymore. And that, um, that becomes a mechanism by which it's possible to, to fuse coalitions between the radical left, the bar owners, the bar scene, out of which emerges a community. When then does the pink dollar become important and become a preoccupation, particularly for the gay left. Yep. The, I, mean the, I think it's the Australian in, in the late 70s, 78, starts talking about this, um, that, that there are commercial opportunities to be had from this, this scene, whereby it wouldn't be just individual bar owners or shopkeepers or whatever targeting a gay market. There was something bigger going on and the consumers themselves become important. And it goes through a series of, of forms. 
you know, the dinks, two dual income, no kids. It's well, not that right. gay people all have you know, this huge disposable income because they're not paying for kids. Um, and then they decide actually that's not quite right. You know, not everybody has good incomes, even if there's two of them. And so they develop this idea of the consumer, the kind of gay consumer, who's a, a section of, of the gay population who like to consume, who, who kind of ostentatious consumption. And the marketers move in on that in a huge way, beginning in the mid-'80s, and it lasts for about 10 or 15 years. Uh, so is this the rise of a gay middle class or the decline of a gay left or both of those things at the same time? I think it's certainly a decline of the gay left, uh, but that's part of the broader decline of the left. It just loses its, its clout. Is there a new middle class? I don't think so. I think it's just identified. You know, the kind of opera queens of the 1950s and the people who had these lavish dinner parties in their South Yarra apartments. They had always existed. They just lived much more discreetly. And they could be targeted. I'm sure the opera companies and the theatre companies targeted gay men in the 50s and 60s and to some extent lesbians. But it was around their culture as much as their money. Um, by, the, by the 80s it becomes this... Maybe it is just there's a bigger middle class. You know, people are better off and more comfortable... Uh, with their money, as well as more comfortable about being targeted. And how does the HIV-AIDS crisis of the 80s sh uh, reshape gay politics in Australia? So in the... We knew about it before anybody else because we read about it in the American press, you know, the kind of political movement which produced things like gay community news and outrage and so on, used to... Get steal half its news from the overseas <laughs> press. Uh, but certainly paying attention. Yeah, yes. right. Before the internet, that's what that's we used to right. do. That's how you had to physically go through the damn papers and steal news. So we knew this was coming. Um, we knew it was going to be bad. And we were organised into AIDS action campaigns. There was a struggle about what they called campaigns or committees. Though... Um, action campaigns, very early, before there were any actual cases, before the mainstream press had caught on to it. So we were well prepared. We were also reinvigorated by the successful resistance to the right. You know, Bryant and Whitehouse and the Festival of Light and the police attacks on Mardi Gras and so on had been successfully resisted. So people were feeling very confident. The leadership of the movement had good connections with the community and was you know, despite being often thought of as mad lefties and politicos and stuff, had a certain amount of respect. And so when they started talking about changing sexual behaviour to gay men, it happened. You know, you can see the drop-off in infections before the public, before the governments and so on, are dealing with it at all. And what that does is creates an opportunity for the government. Labor gets elected in 83 federally, which is just best luck ever um, because they're very open to working with all kinds of community organisations around all kinds of community issues. So they go into a partnership essentially with the gay community in order to promote safe sex. They give them money, vast amounts of money and say, you go away, fix this for us and, and for God's sake, don't tell us what you're saying. You know, don't tell <laughs> us about safe sex. Don't, don't let anybody else see the pictures of condoms on penises and things. Um, and because it works, they, they go on doing that. And even the Liberals fall in. You know, this really is a bipartisan strategy. Out of which there emerges a kind of gay leadership that is in has access to power. 
not just on the issues of AIDS, but law reform in Queensland and Western Australia comes through. So this is sort of an analogy with what's happening in multiculturalism and feminism. The, I mean, this is the great period of consensus, isn't it, where, yeah. and the accord, where the, the government is meeting with various community leaders, giving them access to funds and so on. Yeah. And just as you know, women became femocrats, women political activists, moved into the government apparatus and, and straddled you know, their, their real communities and their, the, the government apparatus as, as feminist bureaucrats. There is a kind of AIDSocrats thing going on as well. It's important that they're embedded in the communities because that's where they can draw ideas and, and feed information back. But it really is. It's, it's the Labor government and it's this strategy of engagement between governments and communities. But communities that have, you know, self-selected leadership of some kind, you have to be able to deal with particular people. You're mm-hmm. not just talking to the community in the abstract. When then does the demand for same-sex marriage start to get raised? I mean, who proposed it? Um, in what context and what were the arguments around it? it honestly, it starts in 2004 when oh, John Howard and the Labor Party get together to ban it. Now, they do that because it's been introduced overseas. And people, we know their names, people are coming back from Canada saying, we are married. Obviously, if you get married overseas, you don't get remarried in country, your own country. You, um, it, your marriage is recognised. So the fear was that these couples, these two couples, would go to the High Court because the legislation was sex neutral. It had no reference to sex of who's getting married. They would go to the High Court. The High Court would find that they were married under the Act. So Howard decides he's going to legislate to stop that. Uh, He hopes to wedge the Labor Party. You know, they'll vote against it and they'll lose credibility in their sort of working class base. Latham outsmarts him in a sense by saying, yes, yes, we'll support this. Um, And at that point, suddenly everybody starts to think about marriage. So you're saying it wasn't an issue in the movement prior to that? Because it must have... So no one was put... Not even a minority arguing for it? Not... No one. No, no one would be too strong. There must be people looking at what's going on in the Netherlands, which is the first place to do it, Uh, what's going on in other countries as i say particularly kind of canada and britain become the issue but it just it it doesn't feel like it's a real issue um it's not something that people talk about. i'd love to go back and will at some point go back through the gay press and see where is the first reference to marriage gay marriage um and i'd be surprised if there's anything much at all before 2004 and, and what about i don't know intellectuals overseas for instance i mean i thought that andrew sullivan had made a big push for for same-sex marriage and i I had thought and correct me if i'm wrong about that in his case this was fairly explicitly about distancing the movement from the ratbag left yep yeah i mean it certainly emerges as a much bigger issue in the united states much earlier than it does here I have no idea how it happened in the Netherlands. I'd really love to find out why they got around to doing it. In the United States, marriage matters a lot more because all the rights that we think of as an individual in the United States are often attached to you having a job or being married to someone who has a job, like your health care 
protection and so on. So marriage has always been a much bigger deal there. Here we had um, de facto relationships being recognised in the 80s at state level and that seemed for a long time to be enough. You know, you kind of, your, your property was protected, your relationship was recognised, your right to parent was, was in the de facto stuff. So in the United States there is there, there are two arguments for marriage. One is a radical one around equality and the other is a conservative one which is what the big old Liberal Party people are pushing this week here, um, that, you know, that this is an, these are conservative values. Marriage is a conservative institution. I did find, I mean, I was trawling through some databases on this, I did find a great quote from 2003, just after Mark Latham takes the leadership. Prime Minister John Howard said yesterday he would stick to his opposition to gay marriage regardless of Labor leader Mark Latham's determination to campaign on the issue. It does seem like for a period of about two or three days, Latham was suggesting that he was going to use same-sex marriage to to win back the left to the Labor Party. Well, that's really interesting because I mean, that, that's two years before anything happens. So clearly it, there's stuff going on out there that, that, that matters. Um, what, okay, so in 2004... The Labor Party votes for the amendment, and in his speech afterward, Howard crows about that and says, this shows, it's not a wedge, this shows it's the entire um, community that's opposed to this. What do we know about the debates inside Labor at that time? I mean, was it controversial? I don't think anyone inside Labor has ever talked publicly about what they were doing. Um, Because I know Albanese spoke out against it at the time. Right. There's very good speeches in Hansard, which are kind of hilarious, really. You know, saying this is unnecessary, it's pointless. The act is very clear, even if it doesn't spell it out, and then they vote for it anyway. It's very unclear. I mean, they had, it, it's not clear to me why they they decided to go the way they did, except that, of course, it was a wedge issue. It was intended to be a wedge issue. It's just that Latham and the rest of them wouldn't let it. Okay, over the next years, public opinion steadily shifts in favour of equal marriage. And I've looked at the survey, it's quite striking. You can see it's jumping up about 20% each two years. What's driving this? Is it a campaign from the bottom? Is it an overseas example? What what is shifting public opinion? Primarily, I think that the minute that they make a big enough issue of it to legislate, and, you know, it's talked about a lot in the papers at the time and it is controversial... As soon as they do that, most people have never given this a moment's thought in their entire life. Um, you know, there's like 30% support who think, you know, gay people should be allowed to marry each other. The moment it's legislated, I think people start thinking, well, that's not very fair because it isn't, in fact, an elite issue in the way that, say, the Republic was positioned as. It's about ordinary people who know gay people, you know, sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, and it's about an issue that people take seriously, which is marriage. And I think, well, if I can get married, why shouldn't they get married? And I think that's what pushes it forward. It's, it's, there's already a widespread acceptance of the normalised gay person. This just tops it off for most people. And I think... So there is a campaign. It's kept alive as an issue. A friend of mine who worked in the media said at one point the Labor Party were kind of getting despairing in the in the into the late 90s because they wanted to introduce something like civil unions. You know, you can be married, we just won't call it that. And then they'd be denounced by everybody. You know, what do you want? 
Um, and more and more it became clear that the, what the movement wanted was actual what we now call marriage equality. Um, they didn't want just a kind of de facto form of marriage. One of the more curious political trajectories around this issue, and it seems to me that an immense number of people tangled themselves into extraordinary knots over this, but is Julia Gillard. She famously opposes equal marriage and does so quite aggressively. Why is that? What's happening inside the Labor Party? What are the calculations that are being made at that time? The, the argument is always that she was beholden to the shop workers' union, who are actively and aggressively Catholic in their... Um, social values, and that they bring those to the table. They're, you know, they're not backward about this. They don't just campaign amongst their members. Imagine campaigning amongst shop workers against gay marriage. So, of course, they don't. They just impose it on the Labor Party. It is a condition of her coming to power and overthrowing Rudd that she will leave that issue alone uh, and, indeed, actively speak out against it because the, the pressure is building. She can't just remain silent. It becomes more and more a demand, particularly from the Greens in the Parliament, that we, we have to address this. She's also meeting regularly with the Australian Christian lobby. How did the ACL end up playing such an outsized role for an organisation that, when you look at their support base, is remarkably tiny? Yeah. Somebody who's worked on the Don Dunstan years back in, back in the late 60s and into the 70s says that at one point the South Australian Labor Party lost the state election because they alienated the Christian, the Christians, not even an organised Christian right, just they, they, they were felt to be. So I think there's a, a long-standing belief in the political parties that Christianity is, is real in people's lives. In a way, that actually, it's just not really. Most people who have Christian values don't go to church, they don't really have Christian values. If you ask them, do you, know, do you believe this, do you believe that? They describe themselves as Christians in the census, although we have fewer numbers. But I think that the political class often don't have a sense of how much clout particular organised forces have. And somehow they've let the Christian lobby set the terms of the debate from, from one side. Now, more recently, of course, it's much more calculated than that. It's Abbott and Canavan and all that crowd... Um, but but earlier than that, I think it's it's the role of the Christians out of all proportion to their numbers and force. What about then within the conservative parties? I mean, was there ever a moment when it might have been possible, say, for the Liberals to say, well, to make that argument you were making before and that some Liberals are now making, that actually this is a conservative marriage, is a conservative institution, we'll just pass this, we'll get it out of the way over and done with. Was that ever a real possibility? And if not, why not? I predicted that every year for the last eight years. <laughs> it, it just seemed obvious to me that, you know, the public opinion was solid. Uh, there was, a, you know, opponents, but I don't think they mattered very much. Um, Turnbull could, in fact, have done it. And he's in the same position as Gillard's in. He makes this deal in order to get himself into the prime ministership. And part of it is that he'll stick with this stupid plebiscite. Um, which he doesn't believe in. He knows it's a stupid idea, but, you know, it's like Gillard. She doesn't believe in her opposition to same-sex marriage. These are the kind of political calculations that you do when you move into that kind of politics. And what were the circumstances then in which the plebiscite became 
a totemic issue for the Abbott wing yep. of the Liberal Party. So it actually happens, we forget this sometimes, that it, the the Irish referendum adopted same-sex marriage into the Constitution. Um, the American Supreme Court recognised same-sex marriage. I was convinced that was the point at which we would just do it. And so are a whole lot of the conservative commentators. You know, the Australian editorialises as oh, well, we'll have to do it now, I suppose. And, you know, Andrew Bolt and all of that crowd, they just kind of crumble because they, it's the end The end is nigh. Um, Abbott, whose who's, who's wrecked cunning comes into to play at this point, comes up with this idea of a plebiscite um, in the party room while the debate's going on. And very clearly, in his mind, it's a re-enactment of the Republican referendum. If he yes, thought about okay. it at all, he thinks he's going to split the yes vote somehow, the way the Republican yes vote split over the model, I think, I'm not sure he thought it through properly because it comes very suddenly, but I think he imagines he can do the same thing, that the support for same-sex marriage is weak or there are fractures in it that he'll be able to play to. And that's wrong. Um, they, they just aren't, as far as I can see, uh, particularly because it's been narrowed down to this tight little definition of it's just about marriage. Uh, but, you know, Abbott... The, for for the for the right in the Labor Liberal Party, I think it's just because it's an issue. You know, it was eighteen C, it was safe schools, it was, you know, they, they they find issues and they run with them. It's climate change, it's the you know energy target, clean energy target. It's not something I think they actually care hugely about. I mean, is is there a sense that they think well, if we do it through a plebiscite, we can pass this at the same time as saying that we didn't want to do it to our base, if you see what I mean, like rather than pushing it through Parliament where you have to take responsibility for it, they could say, well, we fought the good fought, fight. Yeah. But they're still going to have to vote. <laughs> <laughs> what are they going to... They, they can, I suppose, say, oh, well, all right, the people have voted and therefore, reluctantly, I cast a yes vote. But it seems... I don't think it was that well thought through. I think they'd have been better off without it themselves, really. If it had just gone through Parliament, it would all be over and they could turn their attention to something else. When I was doing one of my media searches, I was somewhat surprised. I had forgotten in 2013, Bill Shorten spoke at a meeting of the Australian Christian Lobby and said that he supported a plebiscite as well. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, were you surprised at the extent of the opposition from the left to the plebiscite. I mean, this has been something that's that I have found quite odd and I've written some stuff about, just in the sense that obviously the plebiscite was initially a delaying mechanism, but when it became clear that actually a plebiscite would deliver this outcome earlier than rather than later, I don't know, I was struck by the vehemence of people's determination not to um, not to win a plebiscite. Yeah, I, I have to say for a while there I thought, I tended to go along with that without really thinking much about why would you be for a plebiscite. It's, you know, and the, there are obvious reasons it's expensive, but that's a lazy argument. There's always well, better money, better things to spend your money on. Um, people shouldn't be voting on our rights, but in fact somebody's going to vote on our rights. It's going to be the parliament because that's how rights work in Australia. So I, as I thought it through and, and the stuff that you were writing at the time, and oddly enough, Jared Henderson, <laughs> his argument was it would be over by now. And he's right. You know, February the 11th was the date that the plebiscite was going to happen and it would all have been over. The argument 
the, the telling argument, I think, is that it's, it's, it's horrible. You know, the debate is horrible. Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember when debates were really, really horrible. The Festival of Light in Australia, the Tasmanian campaign. This, this will be horrible. And I think because so many more kids are out now that they're much more exposed to what's going on. But that's an argument for defending the Safe Schools program and expanding it, um, of not of avoiding the debate. There's no way to avoid the debate anyway. They've been carrying on about... Um, safe schools for two years, this this makes no difference to their determination to stop our progress. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing that I wondered, and it maybe goes back to what you were saying earlier about how um, same-sex marriage became such an, an issue, it almost seems that right from the start this issue has become a proxy for attitudes to gay and lesbians more generally. Yeah. And that's really what the argument is about i don't know I, I i do i have found it somewhat cheering to be in a situation where you know was it the bundaberg rum has come out and said it's for same sex rodney rude the comedian has come out and said to he wants people to vote yes the collingwood football team i don't know in in, in a sense it seems to me we're now in a position where a yes vote on this will actually mean a lot more than simply instituting same-sex marriage. Would you agree with that, that it will actually be a fairly significant blow against homophobia in Australia? Yes, I do. That's that's why I'm now an enthusiastic supporter of the plebiscite we didn't have and of this sort of plebiscite light. Because A friend of mine said to me the other day, it's almost, it's never about the issue. It's never about getting married. It's always, you know, the right are running off about all these other issues. And for me, it's about a sort of blow to the right from which I think they will, it will take them a long time to recover. Um, because a lot of them, I think, genuinely believe they speak for the silent majority. Yes. And they're really going to find out they don't. Um, and as you say, the point, the, the campaign, you know, there's 1,300 companies have signed up to, to this this issue um, and there's all these sort of you know civil organizations civil society organizations it's it's f- given people the opportunity to to say what they all think uh, in a way that a parliamentary debate wouldn't have required them to do at all I wondered then with your experience as a historian whether you might have any thoughts on how we might recapture a kind of exuberance in the struggle that exists in that early 1970s as a way of kind of countering the sense that you know people feel under attack people feel that they're being you know they're being judged there's this homophobic hate speech happening how might we i mean how would you characterize that kind of i mean maybe ecstasy is not quite the right word but when you hear people's accounts of those early demonstrations there's this real sense that in fact by coming out in the streets by fighting for um liberation in fact in some ways this is an antidote to the trauma of oppression this is a way of feeling like a whole person how might we go about trying to rekindle some of that sentiment it's hard because in the in the early 70s you're right it was that's what it that's what it felt like the demonstrations were often not protests they were celebratory um but that was the times as well you know everybody was doing this you, you couldn't get, i mean you literally couldn't get through a week without some kind of anti-war event in the second half of the 60s nobody went to them all but there was always something going on and the sense of freedom and of liberation that people felt was was expressed you see it now with this campaign you know when it was first 
called on. There were meetings all over the place. You know, the Greens had meetings and trades hall and everybody was organising themselves. Banners and badges and T-shirts and... Um, and it all started to happen. You know, people really were out there doing stuff. They were enthused by this issue and by the belief that they could make a difference, that they could talk to their family and friends, they could door knock. Um, I, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but it feels to me like the last week hasn't been building on that particularly. Maybe they've got some kind of timing organised. Remember, this is incredibly organised, centralised, this campaign. Um, all of that enthusiasm is allowed to happen. But it, I don't think it's pressuring upwards at all. I think that the marriage equality crowd have, have a clear strategy of what they want to do. Um, and that's a kind of issue. I don't. It's hard to think that you should oppose them, but it's finding ways to tap into that enthusiasm. You know, I, I was saying recently that there's, you know, there's the euthanasia debate going on in the Victorian New South Wales parliaments, but this is not creating anything like the same level of interest. Oh, in Victoria as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just not creating the level of interest because people aren't involved. It's being involved that, that makes the difference. And I, the Times certainly allow it. I mean, look at the marriage stuff. But they don't demand it in the way that they did in the 70s. And I don't know, do we just hope it transforms itself? It's that's a depressing thing to do for an activist. Oh, well, predictions are notably fraught, but what do you think is going to happen? With the, with yep. the plebiscite? Yep. Oh, I, I cannot believe they can turn 30% support into 51% support. I don't see how we can lose. Um, and what do you think the consequences of that victory will be? I think for lots of people that'll be tick, job done, let's get back to work, you know, for the political class. For the people who've been involved in the campaign... I always think this when people get through these campaigns, they'll stop. But some people just stay invigorated. They want to do more. For the Christian right, I think it will be a serious setback in the, in the, in the way we did in the late 70s with the Festival of Light and that, that crowd. I think they will be deeply demoralised. If we wanted to take advantage of that, we would then join in the campaign to defend and extend the Safe Schools program afterwards. Um, and I, I hope that happens because I think, I think that's much more important than marriage. Uh, it just doesn't have the same kind of uncomplicated fairness and equality thing stuck to it. Graham Will, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you.